this church family has uh, played a large part in our story as a, as a family, and uh, not only me and and Diesta, but also my father. And so we we are very appreciative of the uh, part that this church has played in our family. This morning, uh, I am aware that uh, there is no youth worship, and so uh, for those of you who are not accustomed to listening to a sermon, I'd like to start this morning by reading the story, uh, reading the story of the three little pigs. And then once I'm done, maybe you can turn it off, you can do whatever you want, but for, at least for the next few minutes, you'll be entertained, hopefully. Uh, I'm the wolf, Alexander T. Wolf. You can call me Al. I don't know how this whole big bad wolf thing got started, but it's all wrong. Maybe it's because of our diet. Hey, it's not my fault. Wolves eat cute little animals like bunnies and sheep and pigs. That's just the way we are. If cheeseburgers were cute, folks would probably think you were big and bad too. But like I said, this whole big bad wolf thing is all wrong. The real story is about a sneeze and a cup of sugar. Way back in Once Upon a Time time, I was making a birthday cake for my dear old granny. I had a terrible sneezing cold and I ran out of sugar. So I walked down the street to ask my neighbor for a cup of sugar. Now this neighbor was a pig and he wasn't too bright either. He had built his whole house out of straw. Can you believe it? I mean, who in his right mind would build a house of straw? So, of course, the minute I knocked on the door, it fell right in. I didn't want to just walk into someone else's house, so I called, Little pig, little pig, are you in? No answer. I was just about to go home without the cup of sugar for my dear old granny's birthday cake when my nose started to itch. I felt a sneeze coming on. So, well, I huffed, and I snuffed, and I sneezed a great sneeze. And you know what? That whole darn straw house fell down. And right in the middle of the pile of straw was the first little pig, dead as a doornail. He'd been home the whole time. It seemed like a shame to leave a perfectly good ham dinner lying there in the straw, so I ate it up. Think of it as a big cheeseburger just lying there. I was feeling a little bit better now, but I still didn't have my cup of sugar, so I went to the next neighbor's house. This neighbor was the first little pig's brother. He was a little smarter, but not much. He had built his house of sticks. I rang the bell on the stick house, but nobody answered. I called, Mr. Pig, Mr. Pig, are you in? He yelled back, go away, wolf, you can't come in. I'm shaving the hairs on my chinny-chin-chin. I had just grabbed the doorknob when I felt another sneeze coming on. I huffed and I snuffed and I tried to cover my mouth, but I sneezed a great sneeze and you're not going to believe it, but this guy's house fell down just like his brother's. When the dust cleared, there was the second little pig, dead as a doornail. Wolf's honor. Now, you know food will spoil if you just leave it out in the open. So I did the only thing there was to do. I had dinner again. Think of it as a second helping. I was getting awfully full, but my cold was feeling quite a bit better, and I still didn't have that cup of sugar from my dear old granny's birthday cake, so I went to the next house. This guy was the first and second little pig's brother. He must have been the brains of the family. He had built his house of bricks. I knocked on the brick house. No answer. I called, Mr. Pig, Mr. Pig, are you in? And do you know what that rude little porker answered? Get out of here, wolf. Don't bother me again. 
Talk about impolite. He probably had a whole sack full of sugar, and he wouldn't even give me one little cup from my dear, sweet old granny's birthday cake. What a pig. I was just about to go home and maybe make a nice birthday card instead of a cake when I felt my cold coming on. I huffed and I snuffed and I sneezed once again and then the little third pig yelled, Your old granny can sit on a pin. Now, I'm usually a pretty calm fellow, but when somebody talks about my granny like that, I go a little crazy. And so when the cops drove up, of course I was trying to break down this pig's door and the whole time I was huffing and puffing and sneezing and making a real scene. The rest, as they say, is history. The real story? I was framed. (laughs) How do you feel about that story? Was there some point, maybe in the first sentence, where you said, wait a minute, that's not how the story is supposed to go? Do you remember as a child when you started reading stories or hearing stories that were different from what your mom or your grandma had told you. I remember when I uh, first picked up a copy of the original Grimm's fairy tales and you figured out there's a lot, lot more people being eaten and killed than I remember being told. Maybe you remember that feeling when you heard about Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny and saying that's not how it's supposed to be. Maybe you've had that experience as an adult too. Think about the story that our society tells us about how our lives are supposed to go. As a child, you're told, you can be anything you want to be if you just study hard enough. And you'll grow up and you'll have your own house and you'll find the perfect man or woman to marry who will meet your every desire and who love you with all their heart and you'll always be happy and you'll have children who never get into trouble and a house in the nicest neighborhood and a job that makes lots of money and that makes you happy just to go to work. And then your parents get divorced or you lose your job or you can't ever save enough to get a mortgage or you can't find a marriage partner or you find a marriage partner and they treat you horribly or your child gets sick or your child dies and you start to say, wait a minute, this is not how the story is supposed to go. This is not how life is supposed to work. Stories are powerful, aren't they? They They shape us. They shape our lives and they give meaning to our experiences. The only proper answer to the question, tell me about yourself, is to tell someone a story. When we ask someone to say, tell me about yourself, we're not asking them to tell us what they do for a living. We want to know, how did you get to this spot? How did you get to this spot in your life? What are the experiences and the people and the problems that have shaped you and made you into the person that you are now? Stories provide the context for us to help us to understand both ourselves and other people. Daniel Taylor says it like this, You are your stories. You are the product of all the stories you've heard and lived. They have shaped how you see yourself, the world, and your place in it. Think about this phrase, it's going to rain. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, depends on your story, doesn't it? If you're living in a place of drought, the phrase, it's going to rain, may be a cause of great celebration. If you're living in Calgary in the summer of 2010, you might be saying, well, what's new? (laughs) Or, not that again. If you're listening to... Elijah on Mount Carmel 
saying it's going to rain. Maybe it's time to start running. The need to know that your context is true not only of fictional stories, but also of the stories of our lives as well. We need to know the big story of the world in order to understand how we fit into it. Now, theologians and philosophers will say, in fact, that a story is the best way of talking about the way the world actually is. And there are a lot of stories out there. Some are good, some are bad, but some stories are bigger than other stories. These are the stories we tell each other that help us to make sense of the world. And philosophers call these big stories meta-narratives. And meta-narrative just means big story. And each of us has a story that we use to frame and give shape and meaning to our lives. This is what Leslie Newbigin, Newbigin says. The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life is part? McIntyre says it this way, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the previous question of what story do I find myself a part? Another word that we use to describe this big story is the world is the word worldview. Each of us views what happens to us through a certain lens, a certain pair of glasses that helps us to understand what the world is supposed to be like, what is true, what is false, what is real, a story that helps us interpret the things that happen to us. Now, as Christians, we believe that we are part of a much bigger story than ourselves. We are part of a cosmic love story between a God and his creation. The question this church has been dealing with this summer, at least this, the part that tell, Kelly told me you were, whether you were or not, that's different maybe, but the question he wanted me to address was, what does the church have to offer? What do we have to offer? And my answer is this. We have a story. A story that makes sense of us. A story that makes sense of ourselves and of the world. A story that offers hope and meaning and purpose a story that is the true story of the world. Chris Wright says this about the Old Testament story, and forgive the big language. Remember, meta-narrative just means big story. That the Old Testament tells a story needs no defense. My point is much greater, however. The Old Testament tells its story as the story, or rather, part of that ultimate and universal story that will ultimately embrace the whole of creation, time, and humanity within its scopes. In other words... In reading these texts, we are invited to embrace a meta-narrative, a grand narrative. And in, on this overarching story is based a worldview that, like all worldviews and meta-narratives, claims to explain the way things are, how they come to be, and so what they will ultimately be. Now, obviously, the Christian story is not the only story. It's not the only story that people tell about how the world is. What is real? What is true? What is supposed to happen? How the world should work? So this morning what I want you to do, I want to invite you to think about your unchurched friends and family and co-workers and ask the question, what is the story that's governing their lives? And if that's their story, how does my story as a Christian relate to them? I want to offer four or five of these stories that I think the people around us are living in. See if they identif- you can identify with it. The first one is the rat race. 
For many people, when they get up in the morning, they start running. They're, in, in my case, I get up at 10 to 6, I get on the bus at 6.20, I get to, it takes me over an hour to get to work, and at 7.30 I'm at work. I stay at work and don't get home until 5.30. That means that I've spent 11 hours away from my house, and then I might spend 5 hours really living with the people in my house. And all of this I do day after day after day, month after month, in order to reach some goal. We might talk about this as, you know, the show me the money kind of story. It's all about materialism and entitlement because I deserve it all. Susan White says it like this. Oh, not that one. If there is an overarching meta-narrative that purports to explain reality in the late 20th century, it is surely the meta-narrative of a free market economy. In the beginning of this story is the self-made, self-sufficient human being. At the end of this story is the big house, the big car, the expensive clothes. In the middle of the story is the struggle for success, the greed, the getting and spending in a world in which there is no such thing as a free lunch, And most of us have made this so thoroughly our story that we are hardly aware of its influence. This story is about success, by which we mean the good-paying job, the toys, the house. It's all about me. And if I don't look after myself, and if I don't do all those things, nobody's going to look out for me. But it's a lot of pressure to live that way. And lots of us can't handle it. We're exhausted and we're burnt out because we're running in a rat race that never ends and it's never enough. A second story that I think people live with is the story that things are only going to get better. By that I mean that science will solve all of our problems. And if not science, if we throw enough money at a problem, we will solve it. Or what really needs to happen if people just need to have more education. And if they had more education, they wouldn't do the things that they do. And so the economy will just be getting going up and up and up. And then the stock market crashes again. The fact is, even though many people try to live as if it's only going to get better, the reality is that most of us have lived that for a while and then said, forget it, that doesn't work. Because we have things that happen like the uh, oil spill. And no matter how much money and education we throw at things, we still have poverty. We still have disease. We still have crime. And it keeps going on and on. We ask the question, why haven't we fixed this by now? I think a third story that people live with is, I'm not whatever, enough. I'm not enough. Some of us are blessed physically or mentally or emotionally or financially and we can feel a sense of entitlement that we all deserve it. That's one story. But the other story is that most of us aren't financially and mentally and emotionally and physically fantastic. We have a few flaws. And many of our fellow human beings live out of a story of insecurity. They feel trapped. They feel hopeless because they will never measure up to the expectations that the world has, that their story says, the story that they've been told by their parents, their friends, or even themselves. And so they say, I'm not enough. And so a similar story comes up where people say then, really my story is that I'm a victim. It's not my fault. 
it's my parents' fault. Or something happened to me in my childhood, or it's my friends, or my kids, or it's just the economy, or it's just plain bad luck. And so my life is governed by some incident or experience or person that happened to me. And I think probably all of us know these people, the people that are victims. And this is an easy story to get hooked on, especially if it really is something that happens to you that is completely out of your control. And that story starts to define you And everything that you do is about what happened to me. I'm a victim. And finally, if it makes me happy, makes me feel good, then I'll do it. There's no point or higher meaning to any of all of this, so I might as well do whatever makes me feel good. Truth is whatever I want it to be. And anyway, what will happen will happen. I can't do anything about it. I'm too small. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, they say. And if there's a God, he doesn't help much and I can't do anything about it anyway, so I might as well just have fun. And there are others that you can think of probably. What's the story that is providing the context for your friends' lives? Is it working for them? Especially when life gets tough? As Christians, we have a story to tell. A story that subverts and and changes those stories. A story that is better than those stories. But a story that we get to invite people into. And I just want to summarize it really quickly this way. In the beginning, God. You start in Genesis chapter 1. We believe in a story that does not revolve ultimately and first around us. It revolves around a being that has created the entire world the entire universe, and even us. God is the hero, and you are not God. He's in charge. He's big, he's strong, and he's good. That's the basis of our story. And as you read on in Genesis chapter 1, you see, and then God, this God that we're talking about as a hero, created humans in his own image. What does that mean for our story? It means that you and I are worthwhile. We have been created on purpose. We have been made in the image of God and so every person that you see, including yourself in the mirror, is someone that is worthwhile and important. And as we read on in the early chapters of Genesis, we read God walked and he talked with those people. That's what God wants. He has created people that he wants to be involved with. He wants to have relationship with his creation. And yet people chose to do it their own way, and so they reject God. And our story tells us that evil is real, that the choices we make are real, that they have impact, that much of the suffering and evil that goes on in our world is our own fault, and that ever since evil entered the world, the story of all of the world has been that God wants to make it right again. So if we read through the Bible, we see first through Israel and then in Jesus and then in the church, God is always having the same story for him. And his story is, I want my people back. I want a relationship with them. And so God has been working to remove it and restore our relationship with him. And he loves us so much that he is willing to send his son to die for us. And as a result, we have the opportunity to be called the children of God to be part of a family. 
to in some ways, we become, in our story, we become the princess who is saved. God is the hero. He does all the hard work. We just have to look pretty and say, come and save me. And God comes and saves us. And because of that saving, we can change. We don't have to be enslaved to our desires, to our evil impulses. We're not victims of fate or circumstance or bad luck. We are forgiven people, and as a result of that grace and forgiveness offered to us, that means that we can change and we can live to be as God intended. And so life has purpose and meaning and hope. And finally, the day is coming when evil will be judged, when creation will be restored to God's original intention. Until that time, obviously, we live in this already not yet time, the time when the war against evil and suffering has been won through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but the battles go on. And Christians are part of the army. They're part of the army making God's kingdom a reality now. We are not alone. We are part of the family of God intended to make a difference in the world. And when you get to the end of the story and you get to Revelation chapter 20, it's a proper Hollywood ending, isn't it? The evil is punished, good wins... Relationships are restored, renewed. I, I have a problem with uh, the thing about movies is that when you go to a movie and, and there's a Hollywood ending, you read somebody who reviews it and says, well, it was just a typical Hollywood ending. You know what? I want a Hollywood ending in my life. That's what I want. I want good to win. I want evil to be punished. I want relationships to be restored and made into wonderful new things. That's what I want and that's what God wants too. And yet this ending of the story is only the beginning, isn't it? Of a new story. A story that will have no tears, no pain, and no sorrow. Obviously we've made that pretty simple, the story of Scripture. But can you see how that story speaks to all of the other stories? Life is not just a rat race that you go around and around in a circle with the labyrinth that goes nowhere. No. God has a purpose. We're heading towards it. You are not insignificant or worthless or a victim. God loves you so much that he made a specific plan. He sent his son to die for you. That's a completely different story. That's something you can offer your friends. This is the story that we invite people into, the ultimate romantic adventure. We're not offering them a story without conflict or pain or difficulty, but we are offering a story that makes sense of the world, that makes sense of the people around us. We are offering people a chance to be part of the triumphant story of God, the ultimate once upon a time, the best happily ever after. Now, I know that evangelism is a scary word for most of us. For many of us, when we think about evangelism, we think about having to have all of the right answers and then arguing or coercing our friends into believing what we believe, the right things are going to hell. The reality is that that method doesn't work very well in our society, but what does work is storytelling. This is what J.R. Briggs says about our, our role as a church. He says, the role of the church involves two things. Storytelling and story living. If we want to become effective witnesses for Christ in 
our society in the 21st century, we need to be storytellers. How do you do that? Three simple things. Number one, you have to know your story. That's what we do here, isn't it? We come here week after week and we read our Bibles so that we know our story. We say to each other, this is what is true about the world. This is what is real. Despite everything that you see around you, despite the circumstances, God is real. God loves you. We say that to each other week after week to repeat the story to each other. It's no coincidence that the Bible is essentially one big story. Instead of reading the Bible as a rule book, I would suggest you put yourself into the story. How is this story shaping me? Allow what God is saying about what is real about the world to shape how you live the world. And in order to be able to tell a story, you've got to know it. You've got to know not just the biblical story, but how your story personally fits into that. That's going to be unique. How has God's story shaped your life? How is he shaping your life? That's what people want to know. They want to know things like, if, you, if your child gets sick, how are you handling it? What is the story that helps you to make sense of this terrible situation? If you can tell that story, they will listen. The second part is not to just know the story, but to live the story. N.T. Wright uh, uses this analogy, which I like. Imagine that we found a long-lost Shakespearean play. And obviously that would be a big deal, but the problem is we only have four acts and it's a five-act play. So if we were to stage this play, you would give it to Shakespearean actors and they are people who have immersed themselves in the culture and language of Shakespeare and they immerse themselves in the first four acts. They know how it's going. And then what they do is they then improvise the unscripted part of the fifth act, allowing their performance to be shaped by the thrust of Shakespeare's story as they have come to understand it. And in this way, they bring the play toward the conclusion that its author has indicated. That's what we're called to do as Christians. We know all of the beginning acts. In fact, we know the ending act as well. But as the church reflected on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, what they essentially did was improvise now. To say, we know the story, it shapes us, and now we are out to tell the story until the final act is complete and Jesus returns. The question is not whether we're going to be shaped by some big story in our lives. The question is, what story is going to shape you? There are a lot of competing stories out there. Sometimes it's difficult for us to avoid the rat race and the victim story, but God calls us to be fully engaged in his story. Eugene Peterson writes, the biblical way is to tell a story and invite us, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human. This is what it looks like to be human in this God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. You know the story, you live the story, but before you tell the story, you've got to listen. This takes time and patience, doesn't it? To listen to what is going on in a person's life. To say, what actually is driving this person? What are they trying to do? What is the story that they're trying to tell? Why are they feeling frustration because of that story? 
John Steinbeck wrote in, in, in his story, East of Eden, if a story is not about the hearer, he will not listen. And here I make a rule. A great and interesting story is about everyone or it will not last. And that's our ultimate advantage as Christians. God's story applies to everyone. This is the power of story. To draw us into something bigger than ourselves. To move us out of our comfort zones to be and to do more than we expected. And that is what God offers to us and what we can offer to our neighbors. God has invited you and me to be part of his great love story. Every day, we are writing more and more of our story. Little parts, little stories within the big story that God is telling, each of us in an own unique way. We're developing our character by the choices we make, the words we say, the things we think, the attitudes and habits we prefer, and we're moving steadily forward to the climax of the story when Jesus will return. It's this story that gives us identity, that gives us meaning, and that gives us hope. And it's this story that we have the extraordinary opportunity to share with others. Let's pray together, please. Our God, this morning we gather together to tell the story of what you are doing, what you have done, what you are doing now, what you will continue to do in our lives my prayer this morning is that for each person here that their story might be increasingly intertwined with yours and that the friends and families that we meet as we leave this place that we will be able to tell our story in such a way that it will be attractive, that it will be truthful and that it will be encouraging to them Father we are so thankful that you are a God who loves, who forgives May our lives be shaped by that story. I pray in Jesus' name.